I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And on this last Lord's Day of 2023, we will have our last sermon in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm excited to finish up this chapter, and not only are we finishing up a chapter, but we're also finishing up one of the major sections in 1 Corinthians dealing with instructions and teachings on corporate worship. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 14 in the middle of verse 33, and uh, I'll explain why. I kind of hinted at it in our last sermon, but I'll explain why momentarily, but pick up with me in the middle of verse 33, where uh, the Bible begins by saying, as in all the churches of the saints. So 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 33, these are the words of God. As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let um, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy... And forbid not to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. This is part two of a two-part message entitled Order in the Church. As we come to the end of chapter 14, Paul is finishing up a series of practical instructions that all pertain to orderliness in the public worship of God. In verse 26... We saw that uh, the, the what of worship, remember the outline, the what of worship, as Paul listed five elements of worship that were observed in the Corinthian church. In verses 27 through 32, we saw the way of worship and considered how those elements were to be observed. In verse 33, we saw the why of worship, and that is that order and decency are to be the character of our worship because order and decency are found in the very character of God. And so now, as we consider verses 33, middle of 33, to verse 40, it's important for us to remember that Paul is not beginning a new train of thought. We divided this message into two parts because of a time constraint, not because of a shift in content. So really, you have to read this section, uh, you have to read these these passages of scriptures, one train of thought that began uh, all the way back in the beginning of the chapter, but really even before that, because 34 through 40 is part of the, the broader discussion in chapter 14, but chapter 14 is part of the broader section on the public worship of God that really began all the way back in chapter 11. So we've been looking at this subject for a very long time in 1 Corinthians. About as long as it takes us to get through three chapters around here, which sometimes can be a while when you're in these meaty and weighty epistles. Now, I remind you of this because, as I said in part one of this message, 
If we don't give proper recognition to the context of this passage, we will not be able to rightly understand and apply it. Now, the key verse for identifying the context comes to us from a phrase in verse 26 that is then echoed again in verse 34. Notice in verse 26, Paul begins by saying, When ye come together. And then in verse 34, he reaffirms this context and he says, in the churches. There's the the location. There's the context of these instructions. When you come together in the churches. That's when these instructions apply to us. Therefore, we must interpret and apply this passage as a set of instructions for the church assembling for the purpose of worship. Now, the end of chapter 14, the passage we're looking at this morning, poses a number of exegetical challenges. I typically don't give you too much of the ingredients, so to speak. You know what I mean by that? You know, when you when you prepare a meal, you have ingredients. You have, you know, maybe some raw eggs and some raw meat and some butter and some flour. You would never think of serving that up uh, on the dinner table, right? No, you must prepare it. You must mix them together and put them together and cook it, and then you can serve a meal. Well, um, sadly, there's there's a lot that's called preaching that really is not preaching. It's just presenting ingredients. It's just exegetical lectures, and it's just long discourses on Greek syntax and defining words with a dictionary. That's not really preaching. It might be good teaching, but in order to preach, you have to take those ingredients and mix them up and, and serve them as a prepared meal. So I, do, I don't typically get into a lot of the, the background, but I wanted to share just a few challenges in this passage because it is a, a really difficult one, okay? Aside from the fact that this passage deals with a very unpopular subject in our modern culture, it's also a difficult passage to interpret. Let me point out just a few of those things. Number one, where does this text even begin? You noticed I began my reading in the middle of verse 33, and I ended my exposition last time in the middle of verse 33, that's because there's a real question about where the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, actually belongs in the text. Should it be at the end of verse 33, you know, uh, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints? Should it be there? Or should it be at the beginning of verse 34? And the original Greek doesn't give us much help here because Paul did not write his epistles with chapter and verse divisions. And Greek did have some syntactical uh, things that kind of function the way punctuation works, but their punctuation was not the way our punctuation worked today. This would be solved for us if Paul had English periods and could have just put it where he wanted it to be, and then we'd know for sure. But there's, there's no textual variant either, by the way. So some Bibles will translate it with that phrase, the beginning of 34, some at the end of 33, but there's no textual variant. So it really creates a problem for us uh, because looking back to the originals doesn't give us much help. We have to really make this decision based on the context of the passage. So that's one of the difficulties that I had to sort through and figure out uh, in approaching this passage. Secondly, there's something in this text called a transposition. Okay, what is a transposition? Well, a transposition is a variant, it's a textual variant, but it's not a different word. It's actually when a phrase or a verse is in a different location. (laughs) 
A few manuscripts actually place verses 34 and 35 at the end of the chapter following verse 40. And there are scholars who use these manuscripts as evidence to argue that verses 34 and 35 were not actually Pauline. That is, Paul didn't write them. Somebody else came in and added them in later. They argue that Paul didn't write these verses, therefore they are not authoritative because they aren't Scripture. Right? If Paul didn't write it, if somebody came in and put it in later, then it's not Scripture. Now, who do you think would favor such an argument? Well, someone who doesn't like Paul's clear instruction for women to keep silent in church. That's who would favor such an argument. But unfortunately, for our egalitarian feminist theologian friend, the evidence for that reading of the text is extremely, extremely weak. Uh, the overwhelming majority of manuscripts affirm the Pauline authorship of verses 34 and 35 and place them in their proper location. Why do I share that with you? Just because if there was any doubt, I want you to understand this is God's word. This is God's word. Uh, Number three, what does Paul mean when he says in verse 34, this phrase, as also saith the law? At first glance, That seems like a a rather insignificant phrase, doesn't it? As also saith the law. But the more I studied that little phrase and looked into that little phrase, I believe that that phrase is actually what unlocks Paul's whole argument about women speaking in church. So we'll get to that momentarily. And number four, how are we to interpret this passage in light of other passages that seem to contradict it? Anybody have an idea of what passage I might be referring to? How about just a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 11, in verse 5, where Paul says that women are to wear a head covering when they pray and prophesy. Why would that, why would that pose a, a problem here? Well, what does that imply? It, it implies that they're praying and prophesying. So you see the supposed contradiction. In chapter 11, Paul says, Women can pray and prophesy so long as they're wearing a head covering. But then in chapter 14, he says, they must keep silent in the church. So what, what's, what gives, Paul? <laughs> How do we reconcile this? Well, if you remember the sermon preached from chapter 11 a number of months ago, then you already know how to reconcile this. But in the highly unlikely event that you don't remember every detail of every sermon that's ever preached here, let me give you some basic principles to, for approaching things like this seeming contradictions in Scripture. What do you do when you read something in Scripture that seems, at first glance, to contradict something else in Scripture? Well, the first thing you do is you begin with the presupposition that there are absolutely no contradictions in Scripture. So whatever you're looking at that seems to be a contradiction is not, in fact, a contradiction. Secondly, You must follow something called the analogy of Scripture. If you want to sound fancy and use the Latin term, it's the analogia scriptura. The analogy of Scripture is simply the rule, it's an exegetical interpretive rule that says that Scripture is the only infallible and final interpreter of Scripture. Amen. So we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we use the more clear parts of Scripture to interpret the more unclear parts. That means that we cannot allow chapter 11 
to override chapter 14, and we can't allow chapter 14 to override chapter 11. Now, let me just throw this out there. And, and I, I'm kind of giving you a, a, a behind-the-scenes look. You know, if you, if you were trying to preach this passage and you were trying to figure out uh, how to make sense of that, one of the questions you would ask here, okay, I've got chapter 14, I've got chapter 11, they seem to contradict, using the analogy of Scripture, which presents the most clear statement of its position? Well, remember, chapter 11, Paul is not dealing with whether or not women should speak in church. In, in verse 5, that's not on his radar, really. We get there by way of implication. But in chapter 34, Paul is not, or in chapter 14 in verse 34, Paul's not implying anything. He's stating something. He's making a declarative statement. Okay, so if one of those passages is going to qualify the other, it must be the passage that is most clear. And if you remember the sermon that was preached from chapter 11, then you know that one of the ways, by the way, there's multiple ways to harmonize these two passages, which is usually the case with most contradictions. But one of the ways, the, probably the way I would, I think it's the way I preached it, right? I just got on to you for not remembering. I guess I should know. Uh, but one of the ways that harmonizes these two passages is understanding 11.5 when she prays or prophesies as participating in prayer and prophecy, right? When someone prays publicly, whether it's you know me or anybody, when someone prays, they're leading in prayer, but we're not just passively spectating. We participate in that prayer. As we listen along, as they lead us in prayer, as our spirits join in that prayer, we might not make any verbal sounds, but we participate. In the same way, you all participate in the proclamation of the word. You might not stand behind the pulpit and preach, but as you listen, as you think about it, as you meditate upon it, as you amen, right? You participate in the preaching. So there's, I'm just giving you a kind of a look at some of the interpretive challenges when you approach this passage. But now let's actually just dive into this text and look at what Paul is saying to us here and try to answer the other challenges along the way. In part one, I gave you an outline with three W's. And in part two, I have three more W's for you, okay? So number one, I want to look at in this text, or number four, however you want to slice it, I want to look at the women of worship. The women of worship. Paul begins, As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. Well, let me give a brief word about the proper location of this phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. I know you're all just, you can't wait for me to get to this whole let the women keep silence, but I'm just going to let the, let the tension keep building. Maybe I'll run out of time and we'll have to <laughs> preach it. Let me give a brief word about this phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. I lean towards this phrase as belonging to the instruction of letting the women keep silent in the church. And I say I lean that way because it's really difficult to figure out where this phrase really belongs. Um, not only, as I said earlier, was the New Testament written in Greek without chapter and verse divisions, but the, the, most of the New Testament was also written in what is called an unseal manuscript. An unseal is a manuscript with no spaces, with all capital letters, 
Uh, it's very difficult to read. Even someone who studies Greek has a, a hard time reading it. And the reason why is because paper was, was short. They didn't have all this extra paper laying around, so they wouldn't use spaces. It's a waste of space, literally a waste of space. So they would write uh, all caps, no spaces, no divisions, no breaking it up. And so it really takes serious scholars who came along later to figure out where the, the divisions were in the text. And um, so it's difficult to, to figure out exactly where this phrase belongs. Now, let me say this to you. It's true in either place. I mean, isn't it true that God is not the author of confusion but of peace in all the churches of the saints? That's mm-hmm. true. Mm-hmm. And uh, is it not true that the women should keep silent in all the churches? Is this a, a, a custom? Uh, is this a, a, a contextual instruction that only applied to Paul's day? Or is this a universal principle? Well, we'll see that it's a universal principle. So it's true no matter where you put it. But I, I, I lean to seeing this phrase as belonging to the sentence in verse 34 for mainly this reason. Because that structure parallels Paul's argument in chapter 11 and verse 16 where he appeals to custom, the custom of the churches, when he's teaching on the head covering. It's almost as if, you know, gender roles and teaching on gender roles and the proper behavior of men and women, it's not just a controversial subject in our day. It was controversial in Paul's day too. And and it's as if Paul knows that this is such a controversial and sensitive subject. So it's he's going the extra mile to prove what he's teaching and to give support and argumentation for what he's teaching. So he appeals to the universal practice of Christian churches as an argument for his teachings on the proper behavior of men and women in the worship of God. And this is something he does all throughout 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and chapter 14, especially because one of the issues with Corinth was their pride. In, in thinking that they were above, and we'll see that explicitly later in this passage, thinking that they were above what everybody else was doing because they had attained to some higher level of spirituality. And Paul says, no, you are a church just like every other church, and the same principles that every church must follow, you must follow. Now, remember that the word church does not refer to a building, right? Uh, it's not let the women keep silent in the church building. And that's a, that's a rather silly interpretation. So what Paul is saying to the Corinthians is this. Just as women remain silent in other churches, when those churches assemble for worship, so too should your women also keep silent. Kind of implies too that perhaps one of the problems in Corinth's worship, which there were many, you know, they had the unbridled use of tongues, they had the, the awful use of prophecy, perhaps one of their problems also were women who were speaking out in the public assembly. So this is a universal teaching that applies to all churches in every age, and that includes Corinth, and that includes us. So now that we've looked at the nature of this instruction, let's consider what this verse requires. Okay, What does it mean for the women to keep silent in the churches? Okay, Well, obviously... This cannot be an absolute, unqualified command. It just simply cannot be. Why? Well, because that would prohibit women from doing several things that they are elsewhere commanded to do in worship. If this was an absolute, unqualified command, what would that mean? Well, that would mean no singing, right? That would mean no amening, right? That would mean 
no participation in responsive readings, for reading scripture responsively, for reading the catechism responsively. Can't do that because you have to keep silent in the church. Is that what Paul's teaching? Is this an absolute unqualified command? Well, if it was, then there really would be a contradiction in scripture. Because elsewhere, he commands women to use their voices in corporate worship when they participate in singing and and in the amens and the corporate saying of the amen and in responsive reading and in other things, right? So when Paul says that it is not permitted for women to speak in church, we must ask the question, what kind of speaking is he talking about? What kind of speaking? And that question, I'm going to argue, is answered for us in the little phrase at the end of the verse, as also saith the law. Now when Paul speaks of the law, he's referencing what? He's referencing the Old Testament, right? That begs an important question, doesn't it? Where does the Old Testament teach that women are to be silent in the New Testament church? That was the question that was, was rattling in my brain as I read this phrase, as also saith the law. Where in the law, Paul, which you would have told us. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he'll say, as it is written in the law, and then he quotes the passage, and then we don't have to do this word search. But thank God for scholars that put together good reference Bibles. And if you have a reference Bible sitting in your lap right now, and you look at verse 34, do you notice any Old Testament references? Well, you might notice Genesis 3, 16. Ah, now we have a trail to follow. But it's kind of disappointing because you turn to Genesis 3.16 and you read this. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And then you say, what does that have to do with women keeping silent in the church? Why is that a reference to verse 34, 1 Corinthians 14? Well, here's a a good principle of your study. When the first reference doesn't bring clarity, keep referencing. And what you'll find is that there's also a reference to Genesis 3.16 that will take you to 1 Timothy 2. Now we finally are starting to see some daylight at the end of this long exegetical tunnel. Because if you turn, and please do turn with me to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2 is the parallel passage to 1 Corinthians 14. There's only two places in Paul's writings where he specifically addresses women speaking in church. One is 1 Corinthians 14, the other is 1 Timothy 2. And notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14. Let me read it in its entirety and and point some things out to you because here's here's the argument. Paul is giving the exact same teaching in 1 Timothy 2 as he gives in 1 Corinthians 14. It's just that in 1 Timothy 2, he gives a more expanded, full, comprehensive version of that same teaching. So notice 1 Timothy 2, beginning in verse 11. Paul says this, Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And then he includes this, which he doesn't include in 1 Corinthians. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. 
So he says in 1 Timothy 2, the same thing he says in 1 Corinthians 14, but he gives some more qualifications. He gives some more clarification. He defines what he means by learn in silence with all subjection. The silence that women are commanded to have in church is a silence that prohibits them from teaching and usurping the authority of men. That's the silence that they're commanded to have in the church. In other words, he's forbidding them from preaching. That's what he's forbidding them from doing. It's not an unqualified, universal prohibition of all speech. It's a, it's, it's a prohibition of teaching in a mixed assembly. And notice that Paul roots these instructions in 1 Timothy 2 in the narrative of creation and the fall. Now you might think this is a strange argument, right? Why can't women preach? Well, because of what happened in the fall. What do you mean, Paul? Well, because, and this is Paul's argument, because it was the woman who was deceived by the serpent in the Garden of Eden. Okay, so are you saying, Paul, that because she was deceived, now she's punished from, and one of her punishments is she can't preach? No, I don't think that's what Paul's saying. Rather, and, and by the way, I also don't think, as I've heard some interpreters say, that women shouldn't teach because women are more gullible. I mean, just look what happened in the garden. She fell for that lie that the serpent gave, so she doesn't need to be teaching. Um, I, I sadly have known some men that were pretty gullible. Okay, I don't think that's what Paul's saying either. Here's what I think Paul's saying. I believe Paul is referencing Genesis 3 and the, the fall narrative in reference to the woman's silence in church to argue that women ought not teach men in church because it goes against the way God designed both of them as men and women and the specific <laughs> gender roles he gave to each sex. The man was designed to be the leader. The man was designed to be the teacher of his wife. The man was designed to be the protector of his wife, to be the guardian over not just her physical well-being, but also her spiritual and intellectual well-being. And he failed at that job in the garden. And the woman was designed to be the one who followed her husband, who learned from her husband, who was discipled by her husband. She naturally is given the disposition of being a follower. There's nothing wrong, by the way, with being a follower. I hope each and every one of you in here are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So to be a follower is not demeaning. And it was the serpent in the garden who exploited this natural design in order to tempt Adam and Eve into sin. Why did he, why did he attack the woman? Why did he... Go to her with the lie, yea, hath God said. I don't believe that it was because, well, she was just more gullible. I believe it was because he knew that naturally her disposition was to want to follow, was to desire to, to be taught, to desire to be led, and he exploited that natural God-given disposition. Therefore, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 that women must keep silent in the church because it's not permitted unto them to speak. When he says that, he's referring to the public teaching and other authoritative speech in the assembled church. In other words, he's saying, 
for a woman to stand in the pulpit and to preach the word of God and for a man to sit and listen and learn is to go against the way God created them to be as men and women. It's not a statement about one smarter than the other or one's a better speaker than the other. It just has to do with the order. Remember this, that's what this whole section is about. It's orderly worship, the order that God has given us. And the best thing for us to do is not to fight against the way God has created us, but to embrace that order. To embrace that order. Women are to sing in the church. I believe they are to say amen. I, I know pastors that disagree. I think they're wrong. Okay? I think they're supposed to say amen. <laughs> and they're certainly permitted to speak in other ways that may be required by the circumstances of worship. What's an example of that? Well, an example of that is when I, I'm up here and I, I'm leading the singing and I forget the hymn number and I look over at our pianist and I say, what's the hymn number? And she says with her voice what the hymn number is. And I'm glad she does that or I'd look like a fool. Okay, so uh, th- that's just a, a really silly wooden interpretation to take this verse to mean that there's some sort of decibel limit on the sound that a woman is allowed to make in the church building during service. As if she can't, you know, if you you need a hymnal, she's not allowed to say, here you go. I mean, I've I've known people that have taken that interpretation rather bizarre. Certainly, really, it's actually a lazy interpretation because you're not trying to really figure out what does Paul mean when he says this. So women are are permitted to participate in many aspects of worship that involve using their voices. But they're not permitted to stand before the church to teach and preach the word of God and to lead in congregational worship. Because to proclaim the word of God is to speak from a position of authority that is contrary to her God-given position. This is not to say, by the way, this is another thing that makes this text difficult. Because this is not to say, by the way, that there were no women in the first century with the gift of prophecy. Joel 2 in verse 28 tells us, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. What do you do with that, huh? I mean, can we say, oh, well, women didn't prophesy in the church because no women had the gift of prophecy. That's not what the Bible says. There were women with the gifts of tongues and with the gift of prophecy, but they were not permitted to exercise these gifts in the assembly of the church. That that, that has to be what Paul is saying here. And he puts similar limitations, does he not, on uh, on men who had the gifts of tongues and prophecy. You couldn't, if you had the gift of tongues as a man, that didn't just automatically give you the right to use it in worship. You, You could only do it in the way that Paul instructed you to be able to do it. Well, here's the real fun thing about the interpretation of this verse that I'm giving you. The real fun thing is that it makes people on both extremes mad at you, Mm -hmm. right? Because the crowd that advocates women pastors, they certainly don't like what these verses teach. Um, By the way, which, you know, I I am spoiled, ecclesiastically spoiled to be uh, in, in such a wonderful church with such wonderful people. And sometimes I'm a little bit oblivious to things that go on in other places. Uh, but just studying for this message, I, I thought it would be interesting just to look up the statistics. And I did not realize, I mean, I knew that there were some churches that were installing women in pastoral roles, but I didn't realize just how common that is becoming, becoming very common. Uh, 
and what I'm preaching to me doesn't sound very controversial at all, but I imagine in many places this must be extremely volatile and extremely controversial. Um, and that crowd certainly, I don't, I mean, I, I didn't wade through the deep waters and figure out how they treat these verses. I don't know what they would do with them other than just cut them out of their Bibles and white out over them. Because uh, Paul really couldn't be more clear here, could he? So they don't like what these, verse, these verses teach, but neither does the crowd that wants to go far beyond what these verses teach to defend a totally unbiblical view of the role of women. I mentioned a few of those abuses, but I mean, I've seen these verses used to teach that women are not even allowed to enter into a theological discussion in the presence of men. How do you get there from, from what Paul says here? By going far beyond and taking Paul out of context. I've seen these verses used to teach that women are not allowed to voice their opinions in anything to do with church business. How does that jive with the doctrine of individual soul liberty, right? I even saw one interpreter who said that Paul specifically tells women to keep silent in church because women are more chatty than men. And they're more prone to, you know, disrupting the service with their chatter. Again, these are just lazy interpretations. It's just like we read the Bible and we say, well, what do I think it might mean? And that's what I'm going to go with. It reminded me of uh, an occasion I had to preach at another church. And uh, it was a very interesting service um, because it was the chattiest church that I've ever been in. I mean, I'm talking about I'm, I'm trying to preach and there's people just carrying on full-blown conversations. And let me tell you, it was not just the women. And uh, I remember after the service was over, I had never seen a church clear out faster than that church. I mean, it was like the, the last amen was pronounced. I didn't even get to the back of the building before most of them were already gone. I walked back up to grab my Bible and we walked out in the parking lot and me and Abigail were the only, we were the only car left in the parking lot. And I said to Abigail, I said, wow, this church doesn't do a lot of, you know, because I'm used to this place where we stand around a half hour, an hour, and talk to one another, catch up. And I said, wow, this church really doesn't do a lot of visiting. And she says, well, that's because they did all their visiting during the sermon. <laughs> and that certainly is a problem, but that's not the one Paul's addressing here. I don't think he's addressing. <laughs> if you look at the state of Corinth and the stuff going on in the Corinthian church, a couple of chatty Cathy's in the back pew would have been the best thing that they could have had going on for them, Okay. That's not what Paul's dealing with in chapter 14. The way that you avoid all of these abuses of the text is to look not only at what Paul says, but why he says it. Why he says it. And he says these things because he's concerned with maintaining order in the church's worship. Okay, So there's my take on 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34. And I think it's a balanced take that gives respect to the context of the overall passage. Well, let's look at verse 35. If you understand verse 34, then verse 35 will be pretty straightforward because the same qualifications that apply to verse 34 also apply to verse 35. Paul says, And if they, that's the women in the church, if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. By the way, uses that word shame that's a familiar phrase. And it, when we see that, we should immediately think Paul is referring back to the created order. And any time a man or a woman goes against their created order, they're doing something that's shameful. 
So how do we make sense of verse 35? Well, if a woman approaches me after the service and says, Pastor, could you explain what you meant when you said da-da-da-da-da in your sermon? Should I reply to her, Woman, don't you know that if you want to learn anything, you just need to go home and ask your husband. Is that what Paul is telling me to do in this verse? Sometimes I wish it was because in our Wednesday night studies, when I ask if anyone has any questions, it's usually my wife that has a question that I don't know the answer to. Uh, But verse 35 wouldn't really be much of a help to me because then she'd just ask me at home and I still wouldn't know. (laughs) Remember, how do we make sense of this, verse 35? Well, remember the instructions that Paul gives about prophecy earlier in the chapter. Uh, Slowing down and preaching through epistles in a very slow pace is great because we get to go deep, but it also, it gives us this false sense that these instructions are far apart when really they're not. If you were reading 1 Corinthians just in one sitting, you'd read chapter 11, 12, 13, 14 in a matter of a few minutes. So Paul's instructions on prophecy would be very fresh on your mind. And do you remember what that instruction was? Well, one person was supposed to prophesy at a time, but the others were supposed to judge. And sometimes this judgment involved questioning. And sometimes this judgment involved even disputing the message. That was the reason why they were to judge. They were to judge to see whether or not this prophet was really a prophet. You know how you do that today when the preacher's preaching, you should ask yourself, is what he's saying biblical? That's how we know if he's really preaching. And so Paul says, for questions like those that involve a formal disputation or a a formal discerning of prophecy, for questions like those, those are reserved for men because those questions have to do with the authenticity of a prophecy given publicly in the church and are therefore authoritative in nature. So Paul does not want uh, women entering into arguing and disputing with the prophet in the church. If they heard something that was concerning to them, they could go home and they could ask their husband about it. And then the husband could come back and he could raise um, the, that discussion, right? Now, we know that women may have had the gift of prophecy, but the verse 34 prohibits them from exercising that gift in the church. Likewise, they may have the gift of discernment, but verse 35 teaches that if they have an authoritative question about something said by a prophet in the church, they should keep their silence and ask their husband at home. Again, Verse 35 is not a unqualified universal prohibition of any and all questions. What a silly interpretation that would be if we believed it to be so, right? Um, So there's my take on verses 34 and 35. I want to hold them somewhat cautiously, uh, but I do think that there are some serious abuses on both sides of the aisle here, and we don't want to fall into either of those ditches. So let's keep it in the middle and keep it with what God is saying to us. Well, next I want to show you in verses 36 and 38, the word of worship, the word of worship, really the word that regulates our worship. Notice in verse 36, Paul says, what came the word of God out from you or came it unto you only? Verse 36 is what we might call a pride checker or a spirituality checker. Because in essence, Paul is asking the Corinthians in verse 36, who do you think you are? What does he mean when he says, what came the word of God out from you only? 
Basically, he's saying, do you people really believe, are you so lifted up in pride that you think that the word of God just begins with you and ends with you? That, that you are the only ones that actually possess the word of God and the, the truth of the word of God and your opinion on the word of God is the only opinion that matters? Do you think that the word of God originated with you? And do you think that you're just some church that you just get to do whatever you want? Do you think you're so spiritual that you're above the universal teaching of Scripture? That's what Paul is asking them there in verse 36, which continues on uh, with phrases like, as in all the churches of the saints. He's calling them back and he's appealing for them to subject themselves to the universal practice of the church. There are churches who are so puffed up in their pride that they think the word of God just starts with them and ends with them. And that their way is the only way. And that was really the opinion at Corinth. So Paul reminded them that they are subject to the same regulations of Scripture as every other church. Then he goes on in verse 37. He says, If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. Paul is saying here that People who are really spiritual don't do whatever they want to do. People who are really spiritual obey the Bible. That's what it means to be spiritual. So Paul is saying, if you're a real prophet, if you're really spiritual, then you'll acknowledge that what I'm saying to you is the word of God and you'll submit yourself to it. The issue in the Corinthian church was that there were members behaving in ways that were disorderly and in violation of apostolic principles. <coughs> and when the Corinthians were confronted about their behavior, they legitimized it by claiming it was due to their hyper-spirituality. That's a great excuse, isn't it? You act a fool in the church. You, you, you disobey the word of God. You do things that are disorderly and irreverent. And then you're called out on it. You say, well, that spirit came upon me. But what did Paul say earlier? He said, no, no, no. The, the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. Being spirit-filled doesn't mean losing your ever-loving mind. It doesn't mean acting in a way that's just foolish and completely uncontrollable. Actually, it's the opposite. A spirit-filled person will be a disciplined person and an orderly person. The same types of things happen today. Utter foolishness goes on in church and, and it goes on under the pretense of the influence of the Holy Spirit. It's in worship. It's also in day-to-day in -day life. I, I remember, I think I've probably shared this with you guys before and I don't remember the details, but I remember the conversation because I remember how utterly flabbergasted I was when I met a woman who was married to a man and began an affair and then divorced her husband and married the man she was having the affair with. And she's telling this story with a smile on her face saying, yeah, God just led me to this man and the Holy Spirit just led me. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, the Holy Spirit doesn't lead anyone to commit adultery. Mm -hmm. I like what Martin Luther said when he said, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My warrant is the word of God, not else is worth believing. The Spirit does lead his people. The Spirit does fill His people. But He leads us in accordance with the Word of God. That's Amen. true Amen. in our personal lives, but it's also true in our worship. Mm -hmm. 
So what Paul is saying is that if they were really spiritual, if they were really being led by the Spirit, they would immediately recognize that what he was writing to them was the very Word of God. Because by rejecting an apostle, they were in essence rejecting Jesus Christ himself. That's what an apostle was. He was one who stood as a direct representative of the risen Lord Jesus. Now there is no preacher today who can say this to his congregation. Maybe a cult leader. But no sound preacher today would say to his congregation, if you reject me, you're rejecting the Lord Jesus. Because no preacher today has that kind of apostolic authority. But here's what is true of the preaching of the Word today. When the Word is rightly preached with accurate interpretation and appropriate disposition, you know what I mean by that? That means you get mad at at the message, not just the style or the manner of the messenger. If someone takes issue with that message, they must understand that their issue is not with the preacher, but with God himself. So if it offends you that we don't have women preachers and female pastors here, don't get mad at me. Take it up with the one who wrote the book. That's not my rule. When when we drafted our constitution, I'm not the one who put in there no women pastors, okay? That's, That's God's book. It's his word. I'm just trying my best to follow it. And if it makes you feel any better, there's plenty of things in this book that are offensive to my flesh as well. There's plenty of things that I read in this book that smack me in the face and they're inconvenient to my pride and my selfish desires. But at the end of the day, I have to ask myself, who am I going to follow? To whom am I going to submit? So I would ask you, really, you could ask this question about any passage of scripture. Are you happy that these verses are in the word of God? Not just women, but men too. Are you happy that these verses are in the word of God? You can't do anything about them being in there, so you might as well get happy that they're in there. And we we just need to pray that the Lord would give us not only the grace to be obedient, but also joy in that obedience. Mm. Give me joy to embrace who you've made me to be. So there's verses 36 and verses 37. And I love what Paul says in verse 38. He says, But if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. I believe that the primary responsibility of a minister is to preach the word of God. And good, faithful preaching requires a clear, coherent, logical explanation of the word being preached. There's nothing I can't stand more than a preacher who is either unable or unwilling to biblically explain and defend his preaching. And if ever I say anything in the pulpit that doesn't add up in your mind or doesn't make clear sense to you, you have every right. You should come and you should say, Pastor, can you show me from Scripture why you said what you said? Now, Paul didn't have to make these same concessions. Right, Because he was speaking under the inspiration of God. He owed nobody anything. But yet, he still models this pastoral heart, does he not? Uh, Just think of how patient he's been with the Corinthians. How careful he has been. 
He takes every attempt to explain himself and to explain his teachings, to, to legitimize them and to give reasoning for them. But here in verse 38, Paul tells us that there comes a point in which enough is enough. See, the ignorant man in verse 38 is not someone who's honestly ignorant. And this is not someone who wants to follow the Bible, but just needs some help, just needs some guidance. No, this is someone who is willfully ignorant. This is someone who willfully rejects the plain teaching of Scripture. And Paul says here that wranglers against divine authority are not to be endlessly entertained. For those who obstinately refuse to submit themselves to the word of God, Paul says, just let them go. Paul says, we're going to follow the Bible. We're going to follow the word of God. And if you don't want to do that, God bless you. Don't waste your time answering foolish and insincere arguments from those with a stubborn refusal to submit themselves to Scripture. Notice the words there, a stubborn refusal. I will sit all day and all night with with an honest saint of God who just wants to understand the Word and has a desire to do whatever God is saying. They just need help. But those who just have no desire, they really don't want to follow the Word of God. Paul says, just let them be ignorant. They may throw out their supposed reasons, their intellectual arguments, but their real issue is pride. Mm -hmm. Their real issue is not that they don't understand, it's that they don't want to understand. You know, I've never never yet met uh, a self-professed atheist that was really hindered from coming to Christ because of evolution. Those are intellectual objections. But the, the real deep-seated issue is not some theory of creation. It's just that they don't want to repent of their sins and cast themselves before the mercy and the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul says there comes a point in which there's really no point in reasoning with such people. Why? Because we want church to be orderly. We, we don't want church to be taken up with endless debate and endless contention. Someone reads the plain teachings of 1 Corinthians 14 and still thinks that it's all right to have a worship service that looks more like a Ringling Brothers circus than it does a New Testament church of the Lord Jesus Christ, then just let them go. Because they clearly have no desire to obey the instructions of Christ. That's what Paul's saying there. Others who are honestly unaware of these verses, and by the way, you realize that these portions of Scripture where we're at these are some of the most easy verses to be unaware of in the New Testament. You know, it's a, it's a long, practical section in one of Paul's longer epistles. It's kind of hard to be unaware of John 3.16, but 1 Corinthians 14, take a, take a Gallup poll and ask the average church attender what the topic in 1 Corinthians 14 is. See what the results are, right? It's easy to be unaware of what Paul teaches here. And so if someone is simply unaware... Well, they don't know what they don't know. And so Paul says, preach it and teach it. But those who willfully reject the explicit precepts of God's word, they've forfeited their ability to be reasoned with by those of us who stand on scripture alone as our ultimate authority. So that's, that's what Paul says here about the word of worship. The word of God did not originate with us. It doesn't end with us. We don't have the corner market on biblical interpretation. Uh, no preacher has biblical 
uh, has the corner market on biblical interpretation. Okay, It is a-okay to disagree with something your pastor says in the pulpit. It absolutely is. Because he's not an apostle, nor is he the final infallible authority. And so if, if he preaches a verse and you think, mm, I don't think it means what he thinks it means, that's fine. That, that, that's going to happen in churches that have mixture and error. None of us are infallible. Uh, but the more important thing is that we all have a desire to submit to the Word of God. That's right. So you can disagree, but just make sure that that disagreement is rooted in what Scripture says, not how you feel about what was said. Okay? So lastly, let's just look at the wherefore of worship. Okay? I'm st- I know I'm stretching to get these W's in here, but look at the wherefore of worship. I think it's a good heading because here Paul is going to summarize and he's going to conclude the precepts that he's given in this section of 1 Corinthians. So he says, Wherefore, based upon everything I've taught you in chapters 11, 12, 13, and 14, wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues. Prophecy, the clear, intelligible gift, was to be preferred, but the gift of tongues was not to be forbidden. Uh, people, (laughs) People ask me, no, because I've, I think I've said, I've identified myself in these sermons as a as somewhat of a, um, a mild cessationist, right? And so they'll say, well, you know, Paul says, don't forbid the speaking of tongues. Do you forbid the speaking of tongues? Absolutely not. I don't forbid the speaking of tongues. If the gift of tongues was actually practiced following all of the precepts of Scripture, I would not forbid it. But here's my contention. I've never seen that happen. Uh, apart from what I've read about happening in first century churches, every time I've seen the gift of tongues practiced in our modern context, they, they don't follow these principles. So we don't forbid it. We just insist that it must be done biblically. Well, look at verse 40. He says, Let all things be done decently and in order. There is a particular beauty to decent, orderly, worship. There's something just that's beautiful about it. It's hard to even really describe it. Charles Hodge says that it is that which excites the pleasing emotion of beauty. There's something about when, you're, when you go to church and you worship God according to his word and the way that he has instructed us to worship him and then you, you're heading home and you're thinking about that worship service and you just think to yourself that was beautiful. The hymns that the congregation sang were beautiful and, and uh, the, the attitude and the atmosphere was beautiful and, and, and it caused me to well up inside with worship and praise and then the word of God was preached and it was beautiful and Christ was beautiful. That only happens when we come to worship decently and orderly. If we come to worship and we just throw together whatever we want to do at the last minute and we give no attention to what God has said in his word, it won't be beautiful. Genuine Christian worship doesn't thrill the sensual desires of our flesh, but genuine Christian worship does make us intimately aware of the awe and the majesty of the one to whom we have come to adore. So the worship of the church is to be arrayed with beauty. The church should be a harmonious, well-organized body. And we should not be gathered together with each one 
doing his own thing and thinking only of himself. Rather, we come together for the same purpose, to fix our eyes on our great God of highest heaven. Well, with this sermon, we have concluded another major section in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. And I I give thanks and praise that we have concluded this section. And I'm very much looking forward to beginning climbing that great mountain that is chapter 15 and considering the wonderful doctrine of the resurrection. But I pray that these lessons on corporate worship stick with us, continue to shape and direct all that we do when we come together in the church. You know, it could be argued, brothers and sisters, that nothing is more important than our worship. After all, worship is what we will be doing for all eternity. And contrary to popular opinion, it matters how we worship. God cares how we worship. God wants us to worship Him in the way that He instructs us to worship Him in His Word. So let us not offer up worship that is offensive to God, that is disrespectful to God. (coughs) But let us offer up worship that shows that we come with humble hearts that desire to obey all that He has said. And may God help us to worship Him in the way that He has commanded, that all glory and all praise may be unto Him in the church, both now and forevermore. Father, we thank You and we praise You for the good teachings of the Word of God. Even sections like this that uh, are difficult to understand and that contain some things that might be controversial Lord, give us the grace to humbly receive your teaching, uh, to not be puffed up in pride, not to think that we have arrived to some special place of privilege, but to understand that every Christian must submit equally to the Word of God. Lord, I'm thankful for this church and what you're doing here in this place. I pray that you would help us to worship you each and every time we assemble together according to your Word, to give you all glory and all praise. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let us stand and take...